This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to the Views Room from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Saba, and with me is my co-host, Anthony Curry. Hello, Anthony. Hello. We're driving in the world of difficult deal-making this week. Later in the show, we discuss whether Fiat, Chrysler, and Renault can get their wreck of a merger back on the road. But we start with one of the biggest unions unveiled so far this year, that of defense and aviation companies Raytheon and United Technologies. So, Anthony, on the face of it, this $114 billion deal between Raytheon and United Technologies seems pretty clean, seems pretty straightforward in the sense that uh, Raytheon, they make missiles and radars and and stuff like that. And UTC is uh, more commercial where they make like de-icing machines or whatever, you know, yeah, I mean, commercial the, aircraft. Yeah. So, there's, not, there's not a huge amount of overlap. So um, yeah. the cost savings they're projecting for this merger, which is often one of the reasons for, 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 for tying up, is not that big. It's like 1% of combined sales versus 3 4%, 5% you might see in other deals. Okay. But, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't rule out the, the reason for a deal. They're not, they're not pushing uh, big premiums on each other. They're not over, overdoing it on that scale. But it has raised a few questions about whether this is, is worth doing. So underneath the surface, there is a lot of stuff kind of kicking around. Um, so let's talk about, first of all, why why this deal? I mean, what does it even make sense from a strategic standpoint to have these two companies combined? Yeah, to an extent. I mean, it's not as if you're meshing together two companies that are very similar where you can cut up the costs, as I mentioned. But, but the CEO of Raytheon, uh, Tom Kennedy, says this has been one of his plans for years to have what he calls on the conference call a, a platform agnostic company, which I suppose means let's have the commercial uh, and uh, the military sides together, and you know, there's a lot they can do together. I'm sure. I mean, how much is 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 unclear, and we're never too happy when we look at mergers to think about what we call revenue synergies, i.e., that you can get a lot more out of a company combining a company uh, on sales than you might have done beforehand. But look, you know. Military aircraft need de-icing. They need to have um, water systems on the aircraft that they can uh, uh, for the pilots to drink. And yeah, there's lots of other things you can think about doing. You know, why not? You know, think about you know how to get uh, life rafts involved, or you know, what about cybersecurity? The really big thing that Raytheon's been getting into recently. You need that for military, obviously, but you need it obviously for commercial aircraft as well. So maybe there's some some play there that they can certainly uh, do a better job of together than they could have ever done separately. Okay, so in the midst of all of this. Um UTC, as we refer to United Technologies in this podcast, um, basically is in the middle of a three-way breakup. Yep. And they're also um, merging with another company called Rockwell Collins, was yes. a $23 billion deal. So that hurts my head. How does yeah. that work out? Well, um, United Technologies is... is uh, 
has been, it's basically a, a pseudo conglomerate, I suppose. You could compare it to Honeywell, GE and others. Um, so it's got two units it's going to spin off. So one of them is Carrier. Now, if you've heard the name Carrier before, it's like the air conditioner carrier? Air conditioners, okay. exactly. And this was the, also the part of the United Technologies company that President Trump, when he was still president-elect, went after saying, don't move um, your operations to, oh, I think right. it was Mexico. Okay. Um, they're going to spin that off. They're also going to spin off Otis, which may well be a much better known company to many people because, of course, it makes escalators, elevators, and moving platforms, as they so nicely call them. Another platform reference. Exactly. So, but United Technologies' plan announced last year was to push those out into separate companies. At the same time, well, roughly the same time, it said, look, we're going to buy Rockwell Collins, which is another aircraft uh, parts maker. Um, so there's still, and that, that deal's been uh, been approved, I think, and it's been now being consumed. But that means they're exceptionally busy. Yeah. Right? So yeah, so busy, and it's like so they're so they're doing all of this stuff, and then they're going to have to integrate with yeah. Raytheon on top of it, which, which is sounds, an, not an enormous, ob, not the most yeah. obvious company to go with. Yeah, and you can see also that the, the, the shareholders of both companies aren't particularly happy at the moment either. The shares of both companies are down between eight and ten percent since early Monday morning. Um, so you know, we've now got an activist investor, uh, Bill Ackman, also saying he doesn't like the deal. In fact, he got into why touches. doesn't he like the deal? Well, what's I think his, he, he doesn't he doesn't see the rationale behind putting the two together. Also, Raytheon is very very military uh, heavy, whereas Mm -hmm. United Technologies, um, I think aerospace unit is about 75% commercial. He says, look, the problem in America especially is that defense, the defense industry is very prone to political wins. Mm. Obviously, what we've seen under the Trump administration is an increase in Department of Defense spending. But I think most of the Democratic candidates, if they've said anything about it at all for the 2020 election, presidential election, have said, yeah, we're probably going to cut spending somewhat. We don't need to spend as much as we are. Um, so there's a chance that, that, that you know, what makes Raytheon special, its appeal to and money from uh, defense projects in the United States could well get impacted if there's a change of government. So, but but but, but in their defense, Raytheon has a really clean balance sheet. Correct. Well, that's the thing. Financially speaking, Raytheon, I think its its uh, its debt level is just half of its annual uh, EBITDA estimated for this year, where it's almost three times. Um, at United Technologies, not to say that's a bad thing, but it all—it means if you want to give your shareholders a bit of extra money, you could probably, uh, or a bit of extra uh, boost, you could do that probably without merging, and you could just, re- I say just, you could raise some uh, some debt and use it for a special dividend or for a bu- uh, for a big buyback or something, uh, rather than just going into a merger. Also, the cost savings are a little bit weird in this deal as well. They're promising about a third of cost savings to will go directly to customers, well, actually the same to the U.S. government, hmm. which we've seen before in one mm-hmm. or two other deals, but. Nonetheless, it's not going to shareholders. Also, I think I think some of them are, are the cost saves are t- still tied to the United Technologies breakup, which seems uh, fishy. Well, if, if if you put it that way, then really there aren't, aren't that many cost savings coming yeah. through for shareholders, which is probably why they're not particularly happy. All right, so I'd be remiss in not bringing up um, the personalities, which are always part of a deal. And we have the Raytheon CEO, Tom Kennedy, who's been with the company more than 30 years. Um, And he is basically, if this deal gets done, he's going to become the executive chairman. Is that correct? Yeah, for two years. Then he steps down. Then he steps down and he hands it over to um, United Technology CEO, uh, Gregory Hayes. Now, there has been some talk that this... Basically, merger, part of rationale for it, is um, Tom Kennedy's succession plan. Yeah, it, it, it very well could be. In some respects, I don't want to go so far and say that there's nothing wrong with that. I think you always want 
to have your successor within the company. But go back to what I said earlier that you know, he really Kennedy on on the call was saying this, his idea of having this sort of platform agnostic company was has been his his um, his desire for a very long time. Certainly before he became CEO five years ago, I should think. So yeah, I mean, off, CEOs when they think about retiring. Uh, often think about their legacy, and he wants his legacy to be this. But you know, he gets a, a bundle of money mm-hmm. um, if he loses his job from a merger. He gets a bundle of money if he stays uh, on for two years as executive chairman and then leaves. So it's not as if he's you know he's quite well incented to do a deal. Um, but also, you know, not to say it's just about money, but I think that's an important thing to consider. And he also thinks this is his vision. And this brings back to the point of you know if you've got the shares down eight to ten percent, and you've got a Bill Ackman going against United Technologies on this, you've got both shareholders in both sets of companies are allowed to vote on this deal because it's an all-stock merger. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the things they've got to consider. How much is this deal a good deal for us? How much of of it is um, the CEO, one of the CEO's visions for where the company ought to be going? And that's fine. But do we think that's the right vision? And are the right incentives there uh, there for both the company and for us? And that goes back to where the cost savings go, whether they're realistic or not, whether this, you know, it seems like the, the the two chief executives has got the, have got the culture right, at least. United Technologies CEO will be CEO of the company with the executive chair from Raytheon above him for two years. Then he takes over the whole caboodle, becomes chairman and CEO. So they've got a lot of it worked out in their minds, but that doesn't mean it's good for shareholders. It doesn't mean also that they're, they're looking at other risks. One risk that we brought up in the past about Raytheon, on a completely separate matter, is that Raytheon said in the past that up to 20% of its revenue could be hit if there are massive problems with water security and availability in the Colorado River uh, basin where it's got a lot of its operations. Mm. That hasn't come up at all. Mm. Um, so you've got, to, you know, you've got to wonder how much is UTC and how much is Raytheon thinking about this as, isn't this a lovely strategic vision as opposed to is this really what our shareholders ought to be wanting? Okay, so there is going to be likely a protracted fight. Since Quite possibly, if, if if Bill Ackman pushes, that's going to get a bit messy. And you know, it could well be that you know, activists don't normally speak up unless they feel they've got some support from some of the um, quieter, more regular mm-hmm. shareholders. Mm-hmm. So look, there could be a bit of a fight on their hands here, and how they solve it as well. Let's wait and see. All right, thank you, Anthony, for walking us through that. So now we've got Liam Proud joining us on the line from London. Welcome back, Liam. How are you doing? I'm not bad. A bit tired from all this car maker madness, but okay. Let's jump straight into this. We're here to talk about basically the, the, the ability of Fiat Chrysler and Renault to try and get their wreck of a merger back on the road, if that's at all possible. Now, two weeks ago, just after the deal was announced, you guys came on the show and said, look, this is a great deal for pretty much everyone involved and proclaimed that you know this should pass through Renault's board, even though the government owns 15% and can meddle a bit. And it didn't work out. So just before we get into what happens next, tell us what, has, what stopped this going through? Why was it suddenly, why did John Elkan of Fiat Chrysler, the, the chairman of Fiat Chrysler, suddenly last week say, you know what, I'm done? As you say, it was a very kind of dramatic um, evening on, on June the 5th, last June the 6th, where essentially what happened was, you know, there was this merger proposal that was um, laid down by John Elkan, who is the chairman of Fiat Chrysler Automobiles. Um, this was uh, Monday before last. And then um, a few days later, you see some noises from the French state saying, yeah, we broadly like this idea. You hear the similar noises coming out of the Renault board, um, the French state is 15% owner of Renault. Then the next Wednesday night, you have a 
board meeting. Now, this was the second board meeting in two days at Renault. The first one lasted about three hours over in Paris. Um, and we were well into the night. It was, it, was, it, was about, it was going on midnight. And then suddenly you had this statement come out by Renault directors saying that they haven't been able to reach a conclusion. Um, and the reason for that was that the French government had asked for a delay because they were worried that waving through this deal with Fiat would annoy Nissan. And they wanted to go to Nissan and seek assurances that um, the Renault-Nissan alliance would be secure even if Renault merged with Fiat. John Elkan seems to have completely lost patience at this point and just said, right, if you can't make up your minds about this, French directors, mainly French government, um, then I've got better things to be doing. So he just whipped the thing off the table. And you think that's just a, a negotiating ploy? I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong, surely, in um, Renault's board, even, the, the, even if it's just the, the French representative on the board, the French ministry representative saying, we've got to check in with Nissan. I mean, I'm kind of surprised they haven't done it already, frankly, but it's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think as you put in your piece, it's, you know, Nissan stands to gain from this because they're going to get a, a share of some of the cost cuts probably. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that. And, and if you're kind of looking at it from the outside, you might say, well, what's the what's the massive rush? You've submitted this offer, May the 27th was for the Monday, and then by the next, um, when you know, early hours of the next Wednesday, you've, you've, you've pulled the thing off the table. Why, why does that make sense? You know, mergers always take a long time to agree. I think, I think there's two things going on. One was, um, you know, th- this is not something that people are saying publicly, but from talking to various people involved on different sides of the deals, I think Fiat thought that they had this thing sewn up based on conversations that happened weeks, if not months ago, right. um, which were involving the Renault chairman, uh, Jean-Dominique Senard, and the French state, in particular the French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, who they thought was going to support this thing. Um, now, from that moment where they thought that this was a goer, that the political conditions were okay, um, there was, began a slow and steady process of the French state pushing its luck, if you like, asking for a little bit more, saying, well, maybe we'll have a board representation. Maybe uh, you'll also allow us to pay ourselves a dividend before um, we go into this new thing. Uh, you know, various things, uh, job guarantees. And it was it was a case of John Elkan, I think, saying to himself, well, if it's like this now, what is it going to be like to run the company? That's That's one explanation. And as you say, Maybe a little bit of that is true, but also maybe it's a kind of negotiating tactic, and he probably still does want this deal, and he just wanted to put a kind of hard stop and say, "Look, I am. You can't. There's only so far you can push me." I mean, I mean, that would be, I suppose, fair enough as well, right? Because you you do want to make sure if you're okay. John Alcan is used to getting his way to a great extent, I suppose, because the Agnelli family, uh, whose investments he runs, has a, a, a decent chunk of the, of the um, ownership of Fiat Chrysler, obviously, and is you know basically runs the company um, or can direct the company. He's, he's, you know, European financial elite. This guy is the scion of a, you know, almost, you know, aristocratic capitalist family in in, in Italy. Right. And one of the things that, of course, he's got to try and work out uh, for the fiat side of the equation, especially, is how to deal with the overcapacity in in Europe in general for the car industry, but also the fact that, you know, fiat's European operations haven't been doing very well of late. And they're they're, they're undergoing a, a... uh, a restructuring or trying to that um, the former CEO Sergio Marchionne started putting in place just before he died a year ago. So I can see why he, the last thing he wants is a French government saying we don't want a bit more control. We want to be able to make sure that job cuts don't come along to hurt the, um, the French side of any deal. Um, but that said, you know, we have seen that they're negotiating again. Uh, these pr- uh, press rumours have it that way. So, so how does this deal get get back on the road? Do you think? 
I think probably what needs to happen is um, the French government needs to feel secure that if it gives the nod to this deal, um, Nissan in Japan is not going to then turn around and start asking for a load of things um, off Renault. It's not going to turn around and say, oh, by the way, you know, XYZ technological uh, partnership that we have at the moment, that's now off the table. Um, I mean, the sort of the, the important backstory here is that Nissan and Renault have been in a very tense relationship since the late 1990s when the French group rescued the Japanese group from near bankruptcy. Renault has what in any normal circumstance would be a controlling stake. It's over 40% of the shares in Nissan, but it's not allowed to exercise much power based on those shares because it's very sensitive in right. Japan about how you can control this kind of you know, Japanese flagship car maker. Um, so, so what the French government needs to hear is that this cost-sharing relationship between Japan and France between Nissan and Renault is not going to be endangered by the Renault-Fiat deal. And if they, if, if they feel comfortable with that, then I think they'll turn around and they'll, and they'll give the thumbs up um, and they'll give Elkan what he wants and, and, and it might be a happy ending. But that's a lot of ifs I just said. Yeah. And what, what about the, the Nissan side of the equation? Obviously, the company is trying to um, sort itself out after the scandal of its previous CEO and, and chairman, Carlos Ghosn, who's uh, being investigated for, for fraud and corruption of, uh, over in Japan. Um, now, I believe the CEO of Renault, Jean-Dominique Senard, sent a letter to Nissan saying this week saying, look, we're not going to support, we're not going to vote against, but we're not going to support your, the governance changes you're coming up with, which adds an extra wrinkle to the whole machinations that the French government's trying to think about, right? It does. It's, 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 it's very hard to parcel this from the outside. You know, you, you, you had two things happen over the weekend just gone. You had the French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, seemed like he was taking some, some concessions over to Japan. He was at the G20 minister um, meeting over there. And he was saying, oh, maybe the French state could sell down its stake in right. Renault, which has always been annoying for the Japanese side. And he was saying, oh, maybe we could sell down the Nissan state, which Renault owns. And then at the same time, you had the Renault chairman, Senard, saying, uh, oh, by the way, we're not going to allow you to change your governance um, because we don't think that we're getting enough representation on these crucial governance committees. Right. Now, one explanation is that they're playing kind of good cop, bad cop. They're both thinking, right, we need, we need to put Nissan in a corner and make them support this Fiat deal, or at least give us some kind of assurances that they're not going to react if we wave through this Fiat deal. And, you know, Le Maire has the, the carrot, says we can sell down these things which have already annoyed you, and then uh, Senar has the stick. Um, that's, that's one explanation. Maybe that assumes a level of cooperation between the Renault board, um, the Renault chairman, and uh, the French finance ministry, which is not there at the moment. Another explanation is that this whole thing is a total mess, um, and the governance uh, relationship between Renault and Nissan is a disaster, and stuff like this just tends to happen periodically. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Liam. I, I think you know, much as uh, much as these guys might want to deal, everything you just outlined makes it seem exceptionally complex and very difficult to get done. But you know, who knows? Maybe you're right. Maybe Fiat Chrysler and Renault will manage, since the European side of these things does need to get sorted out. Maybe they'll manage to get one done. But I do think we'll be having you back on pretty soon to talk about yet more wrinkles uh, on this uh, three-way uh, tie-up or lack of tie-up. All right, Liam, thanks for coming on. Great to have you on the show again. Thanks, Anthony. Bye. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Liam Proud for coming on the show. We extend our gratitude, as always, to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Ross Shoulder, and Brad Bell. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at BreakingViews.com, subscribe to The Views Room, and its sister show, The Exchange, on iTunes or wherever you go for your podcasts. And please do share your opinions about our show. 
Join us again next week for another edition. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.